Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our sixth episode of the Nauticast entitled John Gets Well and Truly Drunk, an analysis of a Game of Thrones John 1. Our very first point of view chapter from one of the main characters of A Song of Ice and Fire, and everyone's favorite bastard, unless you're a psychopath and believe that Ramsey is your favorite bastard. And in that case, I would invite you to stop listening to this podcast and find another podcast. So, uh, spoiler warning, as we say in all, at the beginning of all of our episodes, the spoilers for this episode and all episodes previous and all episodes after this one is for all five published books, the three Duncan Egg novellas, all of the histories, George R. R. Martin interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show, anything and everything. So thank you to everyone who has been listening along to our podcast. We really have enjoyed a lot of the comments about our Danny and our Ned episodes. Um, we apologize for last week for not talking a little bit about some of the nice things that we heard about the uh, the Danny episode, but we had just actually released the episode the, on the day that we recorded. Um, but today we actually have a couple of comments that we wanted to highlight, um, people to thank. Uh, there's two people that I wanted to thank on Twitter specifically. Uh, the first one is at Mighty Isabel, who's also Mighty, Mighty Isabel on Tumblr as well. She did a tweet through of our Danny episode, and she made a lot of really great comments about the episode itself. Uh, this was my personal favorite tweet of hers, and I think it's a really, really cool point about Danny and about Illyrio and Varys and their conspiracy. She says, quote, The thematic significance of the Illyrio-Varys conspiracy is that they, like all the other players in Robert's Rebellion gener- in the Robert Re- in the Robert's Rebellion generation, vastly overestimate their ability to control the coming of age arcs of the Game of Thrones point of views. And I think that's a really fabulous point that really speaks to why Illyrio and Varys' conspiracy is maybe not going to go as as they planned. That it's they've have they've had this you know years in the making conspiracy that they've been working on. You know, it, it, it's running up against real characters and it's running up against our coming of age arcs in the game, in Game of Thrones and in the in the first book. And specifically, you know, Daenerys starts as a 13 year old girl, but by the end of a Game of Thrones, she's the mother of dragons. That doesn't fit well with what Illyrian Vars were planning for so long. But, you know, they're conspiring, but they their conspiracies may not pan out. And in fact, as we find out throughout A Song of Ice and Fire, their specific conspiracies with regards to Daenerys don't necessarily pan out whatsoever. In fact, every single one of them falls to the wayside as events shape around Danny and as Danny shapes the world around her. Absolutely. I love that comment by her. It's, it's totally true, especially with Danny. I mean, she's, she's been upsetting Varys' plans in so many different ways since book one without really ever knowing, ever knowing she's doing it and ever knowing how much... Varys and Illyrio's actions have kind of dominated the behind-the-scenes works of her story. That you know, they sent Barristan and Strong Bellas to her. They tried to send the Golden Company to her, uh, and yeah, they they think they can control her perfectly. And and you see that theme extending to the more recent books with uh, Young Griff making his own surprise snap decisions based on Tyrion's comments to him in a way that upend Varys and Illyrio again, and uh, he takes control away from his own controlling. Robert's Rebellion Generation mentor John Connington, you see with the Martell children, who both go off script in different ways, uh, from what uh, their dad Duran tries to get them to do in his revenge plan. Ariane does. Ariane over, 
arguably does way too much and Quentin does too little. <laughs> and ultimately, neither of them can live up to what their dad was their dad was hoping for them. So yeah, that's a great point. That's a, a consistent theme. And like I said in the Danny episode, Illyrio is really the first plotter and schemer we meet. One of many in the books is the first. She's he's the first one we meet, and the book will go on to introduce us to Varys, introduce us to Littlefinger, uh, introduce us to a number of uh, behind-the-scenes conspirators. But uh, Illyrio kind of sets the the tone for it in that first chapter when we see how transparently he's manipulating Viserys and how Danny realizes it. Uh, and how she continues to kind of not trust him and wonder what his 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 real game is and yeah that ties into that that overall dynamic for sure yeah it really does and the other person we wanted to thank from twitter from twitter is winter design who is at winter underscore design and he's written us a number of really nice messages about each of our episodes that we've released and mr winter is also an excellent a song of ice and fire artist so check out his twitter page and i believe his deviant art page as well i believe that's where he posts his stuff so you can see some really vibrant artwork about things about different pieces that he's done on a song of ice and fire that brings me to something else that I wanted to, to bring up. If you were an artist and you would like to have your artwork featured on our, our Twitter feed or in our episodes them, themselves in some way, we would love to feature you guys. Of course, we don't everything that we would do, we would credit you guys as artists if you want to be a part of it, um, be a part of our podcast, rather. And uh, we would we would love to see some of the stuff you have. Um, we're, we're looking specifically kind of for, for chapter uh, stuff. So think about... Um, our, our, this, our last editor chapter, our friend uh, Burn One Down, who is Bernie on uh, our, Eminence and My Friend, uh, had drawn a really nice uh, picture of Robert and Ned standing at Lyanna's Crypt. Uh, we featured that on our Twitter page, and it was a really great piece of artwork. So check out Winter Design on Twitter and his artwork. And if you're an artist, feel free to submit your stuff to us. We would love to be able to feature you guys and give you guys a little bit of exposure if you like. Absolutely. Uh, they do great. Winter design you mentioned does does great artwork, really colorful, really detailed, and uh, I'm always interested in seeing new fan art. So yeah, do send it our way. Uh, we had a couple great people who dropped by my Tumblr page, poorquentin.tumblr.com, uh, and said some nice things about the podcast. In the company of a Bengal tiger, said <laughs> it's literally my favorite podcast and favorite a song of ice and fire fandom thing already after four episodes. So that was very sweet. Oh, and then a uh, Akron blog with a three for the E uh, mentioned that a. Uh, that if we stick to a chapter a week, it's going to be a total of roughly six and a half years, <laughs> including Winds of Winter, let's call it eight, uh, to cover the whole series and asking if we were willing to condemn ourselves to such a fate, to which, which, to which I think we happily reply yes. Yes. We might, uh, we might combine chapters down the line uh, when it it's geographically makes sense, like say some of the King's Landing chapters in this book, where it's... Maybe a Ned chapter followed by a Sansa chapter or another Ned chapter right close by where it makes sense is, is one kind of fell swoop. Uh, but for the most part, you know, we want to give each episode a distinct tone and a distinct focus on the, mm-hmm. on the chapter that's that's under discussion. So for the moment, we will condemn ourselves to that fate of, 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 a, of the snail's pace at one chapter at a time. It's the honorable thing to do. It's what Stannis would do. It, right. It is the honorable Stannis thing to do. Um but at the same time, the nice thing about doing this reread podcast is that we have the ability to reach forward to Feast for Crows, Dance with Dragons, the Winds and Winters sample chapters and be like, oh, well, the stuff that we're talking about in A Game of Thrones has some payoff much, much later on, which you guys have, have talked about. I mean, there's been a couple of comments which have said that our podcast is um, chapter by chapter of A Game of Thrones, but mostly about A Dance with Dragons, uh, which I fully uh, 
like a lot, and I will accept that. Um, but the thing is, is that we do have the ability to talk about future books in, in this reread podcast, which makes it a whole lot more fun than simply just going chapter by chapter as if we were noobs at this. Um, but, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, we, will, we will soldier on and we'll keep, keep going until, until the bitter, bitter end. So one of the things we wanted to talk to you guys about before we actually jump into this John chapter is about Patreon. Uh, last week, we talked a little bit about that we were considering Patreon and we had a few ideas and different things that we were uh, considering with that. And we have decided to go ahead and do a Patreon. So we've heard from a few of you guys, like I said, that you'd be interested in so- supporting us on Patreon. And we really appreciate the interest and we really appreciate the, uh, the potential support. So starting April 1st, our Patreon will be going live. Huzzah. So you can find our Patreon at www.patreon.com uh, forward slash not a cast A-S-O-I-A-F. And feel free to sign up. But if you sign up, the Patreon won't be starting until the April 1st timeframe. So you won't be, we won't be charging any, anything for the next month and a half or, or the next month, I guess, when this podcast gets released. So the kind of things we're thinking about putting money towards is pretty familiar for Patreon, for podcasts on Patreon, better recording equipment for both of us, software to make videos. We could do some kind of live cast Q&A at some point if you guys are interested. If you're, uh, if you want us to come to a convention, we could talk about uh, Patreon rewards being used in that way. We know a couple of more established podcasts do that. Of course, as always, at every level, willing to hear from you too about what you think Patreon money should go for. We really want to make the best product possible for you guys. Yes, absolutely. So in terms of the reward tiers that we'll be doing on this Patreon, uh, the first of which would be giving a $1 to $4 a month, the Sparrows tier, which would be a, a thank you from <laughs> us in the end credits of, of the episode and also a chance to vote for a special episode of some kind you want us to do, whether we're focusing on one character, some kind of debate, one particular prediction or foreshadowing. We want to bring not just the chapter by chapter, but... Uh, episodes that focus on aspects of the series to you guys, so you'd have the chance to choose one of those. Yep. And then our, our $5 to $9 uh, giving would be the quote-unquote poor fellows, which would have us uh, giving you guys a thanks at the end of the show. Uh, you would also get our show notes, because we do have a bunch of show notes. For instance, this document for Game of Thrones, John 1, is seven pages long, and you get to see the different things that Emmett and I are working on. And you would also get the chance to vote on special episodes, as well as listen to those special episodes. In the 10 to $14 a month tier, it's called the Hedge Knights, you'd get a thanks at the end credits, the show notes, the special episodes, and also one day early release. You'd, you'd get Ooh. each weekly episode one day before anyone else. Makes you super special. There you go. And then for $15 to $19 a month, there are Sworn Swords. You get a thanks, show notes, special episode, one day early release, and the option to submit a question for us to answer in our rotating question of the week. So if you remember when we talked about our first fandoms, that was something that I wrote as a question to ask Emmett. Well, you guys can be the ones to ask us questions about different things. It doesn't have to be a Song of Ice and Fire related. It can be pretty much anything right i think we're we're pretty we're pretty open dudes we, we'll be willing to answer any questions and we can shoot our mouths for 20 minutes about pretty much any topic we like hearing ourselves talk it's true so absolutely well, i like hearing you talk oh sweetie <laughs> so next up is the 20 to 29 dollar a month tier in which you are the king's guard so you get thanks at the end credits show notes the uh option to submit question for the rotating question of the week the voting in the special episodes and a two-day early release, so you get the next episode two days in advance of everyone else. Yeah, and then our, our final one is our thirty dollars in a month, thirty dollars and above, 
uh, a month. And th- those are our Lord's Commander. And that is a thanks, special episodes, show notes, three-day early release. So you would be getting our episodes on Friday as opposed to Monday when every, every other episode will release. You'll get the option to submit a question for us to answer in a rotating question of the week. And like I, like we've always, like we've said before, you will get be getting special episodes as well. So if you want to join our Patreon, sign up, but there's really no pressure. I mean, we're here to have fun with you guys first and foremost. And the thing is, I want to reemphasize that our Monday episodes will still be coming out every week. But we ha- again, we have heard from some of you folks that have said that you want to support us on Patreon. We're honored by um, by those of you guys who've said that. But, you know, we're, we're honored by you guys just listening to us all together. I mean, we're just a, we're just a couple dudes from Baltimore and, and Buffalo, and, you know, we're we're, we're happy to have you guys as, as a part of our lives, and uh, we're happy to, to be a small part of yours as well. So if you want to join us on Patreon, feel free. But if you don't, no pressure, man. I mean, or woman. Just uh, just keep listening to us, and we'll keep interacting and, and having fun here. We are young fools who know nothing of the ways of war, but <laughs> well, stick with us, folks. <laughs> Except for Jeff. He quite literally <laughs> knows the ways of war. A little bit. Um, so, that out of the way... Um, thank you again for listening, and now we turn to Game of Thrones, John 1. Emmett, take us through. So when we talk about the most well-developed characters in the Song of Ice and Fire, the ones who have grown and changed and had most interesting arcs throughout the published books, we tend to focus on the ones who have had sharp shocks, you know, clear before and after breaking points, where you can point to the text and say, okay, this is who they were beforehand, this is who they were after, this is how the arc changed, this is what makes them a well-developed character, is this shock, and what happened to them afterwards. Your Theons and your Jamies, arguably your Sandor, although you you learn about his arc in different ways at different times, that those tend to be the ones most talked about in the series as the most well-developed over-time characters. Uh, Jon Snow certainly does not qualify as one of those. He does not have... There's no one distinct Jon moment. There's no point moment you can point to and say this is when Jon changes or truly develops as a character. But I think in terms of sheer accumulation of detail and how that has come to weigh on him and influence his thinking and his, his priorities and his emotions as a character, I would argue he's the best developed character in A Song of Ice and Fire at that granular level. He gradually mm-hmm. earns your interest in him as a character, as a distinct being. I mean, you know, he's he's starts off very tropey, as we'll get into later on in this episode. <laughs> but by the time you get to dance, to go back to the theme of this podcast actually just being an excuse <laughs> to talk about Dance with Dragons, by the time you get to dance, John is a really fascinating character whose every de- every decision he makes you can see ripples going backward in time as to everything he's gone through, and he's constantly seeing Egret and thinking about his family and everything he's lost and done, and it just all the weight of the first three books pays off beautifully in dance, and just the build-up is flawlessly executed. However, that all has to start somewhere, and while Jon's arc in A Game of Thrones is perfectly structured as part of that, he's going on a coming-of-age story, something about maturation and fitting in with a new community, and finding friends, and starting leadership, and dealing with bullies. It's very like Tamora Pierce slash 80s high school movie, in a lot of ways mm-hmm. with John. It's a very, mm-hmm. it's a coming-of-age story in a different way from Bran, but they're both very recognizable, very familiar coming-of-age stories. The structure with John is, is absolutely perfect, and it's executed with all the right beats over the course of Game of Thrones, with Alistair Thorne, and Sam and Maester Aemon and the temptation at the end to go off and fight because his dad got killed. It's all, it's all there. However, 
my one caveat to that is John himself at this point in the start of his story is is just not as likable or interesting as he becomes later on. There is a certain kind of stiffness and awkwardness to the way Martin writes John at first. That is, he clearly immediately understands uh, Ned and Catelyn and Daenerys and Tyrion. He writes them as if he's been writing them for years and they fit immediately like a glove and that's what draws you into those early chapters with the kind of easy familiarity and intimacy that we've been talking about the last few episodes. With John, I'm going to argue it's it's not quite there yet. And in part, (laughs) I think it's because Martin is trying to present him at the very beginning of this arc when he's kind of... He's both sympathetic and sheltered in a way. He's he's got good reasons to be angry, but he's naive about how he expresses them and talks about them, which fits his age. There's nothing out of place about the chapter, but at this point, it just feels a little behind glass. Yeah, it it, it does. And John in a Game of Thrones, and we we talked about this, I believe, in the Brand chapter. But John in a Game of Thrones is probably my least favorite version of John that we get. When we get into A Clash of Kings, I really start grooving to John when he joins up with Corn Halfhand and goes on that exciting and dangerous ranging to find out where the wildlings are and what they're up to and why they're digging in the frost fangs. Here in A Game of Thrones, John is just, he's not the most dynamic guy in the world. I think that, you know, Emmett, and you had talked about how it's, he's much more interesting because of the things happening around him as opposed to intrinsically interesting. But I mean, you do get good stuff and you do get a lot of good stuff in this chapter. I mean, we have again, seven pages worth of notes here of stuff that we took down about this chapter itself. Um, one of the, the things that's interesting about John, so to kind of not totally backpedal on my point, but there is a really interesting dynamic of John being, um, Almost kind of, and this is kind of going to hurt some people who are who are Jon Snow fans, but he's almost Sansa Stark-like in this first chapter. There's this really uh, interesting quote in the chapter where Jon is, is you know, drinking and he's at the Winterfell feast and he's at a table away from the main hall. So he's at a table with a bunch of squires and a bunch of free riders and folks that are not very, that, that do not have a high station in this, in this world of Westeros. And he's he's sitting around and he's listening to stories and he thinks, quote, they were fine company and John relished the stories they were telling, tales of battle and betting and hunt, unquote. And so I, as I read it this time during this reread, I was like, man, what battles have these squires fought in? The last real conflict in Westeros was the freaking Greyjoy Rebellion, which ended eight years before the Winterfell Feast. And though we find out that some squires are squires for many years, which is something that actually is historical, that some people never advanced to knighthood, either they didn't have the money or they didn't have the desire to become knights. And George has actually talked about this in some Sospake Martins as well. Um, At the same time, we should be taking these stories and these squires uh, with a big grain of salt. But John, at this point, doesn't really take what they're saying with a grain of salt. He swallows it wholesale. So... Part of John's early arc is being disabused of his notions and what he grew up hearing. So John isn't the good guy in the in the eyes of the lowborn Night's Watch recruits when he eventually goes north. When he eventually goes to the Wall, instead he's the bully, as Donald Noy tells him. John's prejudice against the wildlings that he probably incurred from listening to old Nan stories is overturned by his experience living with them in a storm of swords. And then you know, back kind of backpedaling to this chapter itself. When John starts, when Benjamin approaches and talks with John, and John starts shooting his mouth about how great Darren the first Targaryen was and how he's John's hero, 
Benjen quickly reminds John that Darren's conquest of Dorne really did not go as smoothly as John is, is making it out to seem. You know, Benjen says, quote, your boy king lost 10,000 men taking the place, that is Dorne, and another 50,000 trying to hold it. Someone should have told him that war isn't a game. Also, Darren Targaryen was only 18 when he died, or have you forgotten that part? So when I read this, and I also see John kind of, you know, taking the words of these folks that he really should be kind of having a little more skepticism towards, and but kind of swallowing it whole and having this grand conception about how grand life is and how Darren Targaryen's his hero. What what it kind of reminds me of is that whole theme to Sansa's arc, which is that life is not a song, and that is something that. Sansa learns to her dismay throughout A Game of Thrones, A Clash of Kings, A Storm of Swords, and A Feast for Crows, and probably The Winds of Winter as well. And But this lesson also applies equally to Jon Snow, where life isn't a song about heroes that are winning and being victorious in battle. Life also has the consequences of losing 60,000 people in a war, in, in a war that probably didn't need to be fought, as we find out later in from... Um, uh, from the World of Ice and Fire and from the Duncan Egg novellas that Dorne wasn't brought into the kingdom. Uh, it was brought in temporarily by Darren the First Targaryen, but it was actually brought into the kingdom by a marriage between Darren the Second and Mariah Martell. Um, but that's actually how Dorne came into, into the Seven Kingdoms. John doesn't take that lesson here. He thinks that it was all because of the conquest. But life is not a song, John, and you're going to learn that the hard way here in A Game of Thrones. Absolutely, and he later learns that lesson with the Wildlings, that his ultimate move to integrate the Wildlings into the realm is not conquest, but the, the marriage of Alice and Sigor, and that's what yes. symbolizes and enacts what he's trying to do more than anything else, and he, he, so he's learned that lesson. Uh, and I agree, he starts off in a, in a place that is similar in a lot of interesting ways to Sansa, and they both have to grow and change and get out of that mindset. I suppose what makes it not work for me as well in John's case is there's this there's this weird conflict between how cynical he's supposed to be and how naive he's supposed to be because it, yep. it, he's supposed to be both at once and it, in a way that doesn't I, I understand what they're going what Martin is going for because it's so well articulated later in the book with with that great scene when Donald Noy dresses him down and says look you might have felt like you were on the bottom rung at Winterfell but comparatively speaking you are still a noble and you still have had advantages that none of these kids have even if their parents were right. married. So then it becomes clear what Martin's going for. He's supposed to, he's trying to get John to realize that there's different kinds of, of privilege and wealth and power and that he has to negotiate among them with more open eyes and an open heart. And, you know, that's all there. That's all good. But in this chapter, it's it's weird because on one hand, he's telling himself he has to be the observant, cutting, sly one who can see what's going on behind the faces. But on the other hand, he's like getting freaked out when Benjamin mentions sex to him in a really childish yeah. way it's it's I'm I'm not saying those can't be both traits in one human being of course I'm just saying the the aim and trajectory of his characterization feels slightly muddled to me in this chapter um, in a way that Martin gradually smooths out as the book gets going and as John Plotts get going and as like you said when he goes beyond the wall in Clash of Kings actually starts interacting with the wildlings actually starts interacting with Night's Watch who are worth a damn because that is also one yep. of my criticisms of John's arc in a Game of Thrones is just that the Night's Watch just sucks and like I get, <laughs> I get the point that Martin is making that this institution has fallen apart and come, you know it's going on hard times and John has to have the the wool ripped from his eyes but like they're all 
Like it's it's hard to believe these guys hold the wall together the way they're presented no, in this you're book. Right. And it's, yeah, it's, absolutely. it's you can see it as a corrective in Clash when you meet Corn Halfhand and his gang and how they're these just hardened, badass veterans. And you can see, okay, you can you remember oh wait, this is still is a military colony. It's not right. just asshole central. Um <laughs> But yeah, so I think I, I totally agree about the the arc in common with John and Sansa. It's just weird in John's case because with Sansa, it's just it's clear she's in a bubble. She's been in the bubble her whole life. She's never right. had anyone break the bubble. Neither of her parents ever had interest in busting the bubble. Anything that seemed like a challenge to it, she always just interpreted as Arya ness or just something right. weird. And so, when, so when the challenge happens, it shatters everything. But with John, it's like it's a weird mix where he's world weary and like. You know, Catelyn's been mean to him his whole life, so he's like developed a thick skin. But he's also still in the song bubble, so it's it's yeah. kind of for me, it's a little more uh, muddled. It is muddled, I would agree, and that kind of takes me to talking a little bit about this whole concept of how bastardy, how it really informs John's this chapter really strongly, but also informs his entire point of view in A Song of Ice and Fire. And you know, the chapter actually opens with there were times, not many, but a few when Jon Snow was glad he was a bastard. So Jon's arc ends, or I guess near enough is mixed no matter if you're speaking as George R. R. Martin, with Ramsay Bolton, Trueborn son of Trueborn Lord of Winterfell, repeatedly calling Jon a bastard in the pink letter. But here in this opening here in this opening chapter though, the word bastard appears 14 times. It seems to be the way that Jon pl- that rather that George is structuring almost this chapter around the word bastard. It impacts on who John is, and it helps us to focus on John's identity, or at least an aspect of John's identity that, you know, gets gets a bit of fleshing out, I would say, in the Game of Thrones, to be fair to, to Jon Snow in the Game of Thrones. But at the same time, it, it, there are still some issues with John, as, as we'll get to in each succeeding Jon Snow chapter. So on the one hand, John is happy to be a bastard, right? He's happy to be drinking away from the from the high table from the dais, and he's he's having a grand old time with these squires filling his head with all of these stories that John is, again, swallowing wholesale. But on the other hand, the inherent inferiority in John's bastardy is something that he is acutely aware of. So when Benjen asks John why he isn't sitting with his brothers, he responds, quote, Lady Stark thought it might give insult to the royal family to seat a bastard among them, quote unquote, or unquote. And, you know, John feels inferior as a bastard. And, you know, John's actually, you know, Catelyn Stark for uh, all of her faults, which, of course, she has none, uh, has a has a point in, you know, if she's aware of Robert's bastards, which at least she should, she should be aware of one. Uh, because Maya Stone was born when Ned was uh, being fostered at the Vale with Robert, then you know maybe it's probably the be- not the best idea to seat the Bastard of Winterfell uh, near the the royal family and near Cersei Lannister as well, given their given the history that Cersei and Robert share. Um, but John also thinks that his bastardy gives him a really unique per- point perspective on the world around him, and you know it's kind of funny like that John the Watcher weirdy that uh, that. Emmett, you brought up in Brand's first point of view chapter, it, it gets a mention here with John having to observe things as a bastard. Like Cersei is angry about Robert visiting the crypts. You know, I can see why he would make that observation, but at the same time, like he's the only one that makes the observation besides Ned, I guess, although Ned doesn't really dwell on why, why Cersei is angry um, there. He also thinks about stuff about like how bastards grow up f- faster than other children and that bastards can have their own peculiar set of honor. 
But at the same time, in George's conception of John, the word bastard and its ensuing social stigma hurts John too. So when, you know, you had talked about how John has this really weird reaction to sex, um, the the context of it is in Benjamin telling him that he should, you know, father a few of his own bastards before he makes the decision to join the Night's Watch. And John angrily tells his uncle that he will never father bastards. And, and that does carry out in um, some of the stuff with the grit later in Storm of Swords where he does think back to hoping that he doesn't actually father bastards with the grid, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly. It's, again, it's probably been a few years since I've read, a, well, about two years since I've read A Storm of Swords. And then the other part, too, and this becomes the central feature of the chapter, is John and Tyrion Lannister, when they converse, John feels a coldness envelop him when Tyrion calls him Ned Stark's bastard. So this is important, this this whole idea of bastard and how uh, it helps us inform us of John, who John is. Uh, it, it reaches a logical conclusion when Tyrion gives John a bit of life advice that he will apply for the rest of his arc. And then Tyrion says, and this is one of those famous Google this quote thing about a song of ice and fire. You will always find this is one of the top quotes in all of the world. Tyrion says to John, quote, never forget what you are, for surely the world will not make it your strength. Then it can never be your weakness. Armor yourself in it, and it will never be used to hurt you. Unquote. So though John will grapple with things down the line, like considering Stannis' offer to raise him as John Stark and become the Lord of Winterfell, will constantly feel the sting of being called a bastard throughout all five published books. Here in this chapter, George masterfully uses the word bastard and its impacts to structure John's human heart in conflict with itself. And that doesn't just go for this chapter as well, but it's here and throughout John's narrative in A Song of Ice and Fire. It really is. It, it develops and changes in interesting ways. Like his relationship to Winterfell, all of John's many mentors give him different advice about what to do about it and what about to do with, with his identity and how he's constantly caught between worlds. And they're all, they all have a point and they all fail in certain ways. Like what I find interesting about that little bit of advice Tyrion gives John is he blatantly fails to follow it himself. He might mm -hmm. be trying to. But he does not, because it, it, nope. he, he very much allows the identity of who he is to it's hurt It's like that, you know, in a Clash of Kings, where he gets really angry about the small folk calling him the demon monkey man, right, Tyrion? Like, he's like, yeah. why would they ever call me that? And you're like, dude, you just take your advice you gave to John. Like, freaking let that, let that become the armor yourself. Call yourself the demon monkey man in public and stuff like that. But instead, Tyrion just lets it, like, it, it pricks him, right? It, it really kind of hurts him. You know, rightfully so, but at the same time, he doesn't use it to kind of ground his own identity and kind of gird himself up against the the snares and and the uh, and the wounds of the world that the world can offer to Tyrion. Absolutely, the character I always think about is Asha. Like she is so brilliant at taking and knowing how she's going to be insulted and turning that around to benefit her, whether she's framing her weapons as her husband and her her babe or you know insulting the masculinity of any man who challenges her on the basis of masculinity and you know obviously she's playing into a really harmful poisonous culture when she does that but it's her survival mechanism and it's how she establishes herself within that political climate and that is something that neither John nor ultimately Tyrion are that good at and it's for relatable reasons because they both especially Tyrion, are convinced they can't be loved or they can't yeah. properly be... They, they assume that it's always going to be mediated through this lens. That's what kind of Tyrion sees in Jon, uh, that Jon is terrified of being called a bastard or thinking about it because that just mediates all of his relationships, especially with Ned because he wants to hold up Ned as his paragon of moral virtue, but his own existence seems to contradict that. Yeah. Uh, and, and Tyrion 
you know, Tyrion is so convinced that the the mob will always hate him that he never tries to change that public image, and that that ends up uh, screwing him over again and again. And then when John becomes Lord Commander, he seems almost hostile to the idea of having to think about his public image or of having to convince yeah. people that he's doing the right thing or toss people bones or, you know, he's, he's so obviously right. Because he's obviously right, and because he thinks that they, they, they're they just going to hate me. I am the warg, right. I am the traitor, I killed Corrin Halfhand. You know, all these things, and it, it's it's very relatable, and it's, he's, you know, they're the ones getting wronged, but it's you can see how it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, that they both kind of, they, they make it so it's impossible for anyone to view them as any other way. And it is also interesting that when John gets to the wall, what... Alistair Thorne really hones in on as the source of the bullying isn't the bastardy, it's the nobility. It's hmm. Lord Snow, and it's the mocking contradiction between those two things. That's what he goes after with John. That's because he senses immediately that's what makes him different from the other boys. It's not the bastardy, it's the fact that he got trained with steel by a master at arms, and he separates right. that out. Uh, so that that becomes interesting uh, as far as John's conception of what it means to be a bastard. And how that relates to, like, like we were saying earlier, other ways of being low on the social totem pole. But yeah, so that's that's what I like about it. It develops in a lot of different ways over the course of his story. The meaning of being a bastard and his relationship to Winterfell. That's you know the strong running arc throughout John's chapters. And it, like I mentioned, it's really reflected off his his mentors, John. Even for a fan, uh, fantasy protagonist of his particular strike, John has a lot of father figures over the course of the series, and they keep replacing yep. each other, and they keep giving different advice and different ways of dealing with his problems, and that, that that's another precedent, like the bastardy, that's established right here in this chapter with his... So oh, the overall structure of the chapter is John's at the feast, the, the feast being thrown for Robert's arrival. Uh, you know, it's the, the night, it's that night after he offered the handship to Ned... And John is observing the the royal family and the his, the members of his family enter the room and take their place on, on the high table. And then he's hearing this, the stories from the squires, as you say. Uh, Benjen walks in and he has a conversation with John. John gets angry about... John asks him to join the Night's Watch, gets angry when Benjen tells him to take his time, runs outside and has a cathartic conversation with Tyrion. So <laughs> it immediately established this is these mentor figures as the prime, like, structural movers in John's arc. His conversations with them and how they talk to him and how they treat him is what drives his story forward, what drives his internal debate. Uh, and, you know, really kind of... You can mark the growth of John's character by the different kinds of mentors he ends up having, from Benjamin and Tyrion early on, who are trying to nurture him into these very basic kinds of maturity. And then you have characters like Stannis or Mance who really challenge John at a fundamental level about who he wants to be and why he wants to yeah. be that. I think what makes, again, separates it from uh, the very kind of tropey nature of, of, of this kind of endless mentorship of the protagonist character is how, like I said, they all make mistakes. They're all looking backwards in certain ways. Like Benjen, is, when he tells John to go out, have a, you know, have yourself a couple bastards, have a great time, he's clearly kind of nostalgic for his own lost youth and trying to get John out there to, to the world. I've never seen or, that before. Or when, like, or when Tyr, well, he's like, he's, he's talking, he says to John, I believe I was younger than you the first time I got well and truly drunk, the phrase that gives the title of this episode. And he, like, he's thinking back, yeah. like, maybe he's talking about Harrenhal, for all we know, uh, about the, oh, you gosh. know, the first time he, he, had, he was at a true party and he's seen John in that light. Like we were saying about Ned and Robert, how they're always backwards looking. Or, you know, Tyrion clearly is looking at John and saying, okay, you, you need to have thick skin, young man, because you're going to go through trials like I just did. 
and you, or you get to Gior Mormon at the wall who gives John his sword because he hopes John will do better than his actual son did. Yeah. You know, all these mentors are, you know, they're trying to, they're trying to pass something on to John before it's too late. Too late. They're not saintly, uh, departed figures. They're they're all messy human beings with their own problems and baggage and backstory. And they all, I, th- I think it's crucial that they all make mistakes with John, and they all they all give him mm-hmm. bad advice. Like, I would say Eamon's kill the boy and let the man be born turned out to be kind of bad advice. Because it let, <laughs> yeah. maybe, it, it's maybe not his fault, but it led John to push all his friends away and, like, yeah. build this wall between him and everyone else. Um, and you see which that. Probably, which, it probably wasn't Eamon's original intent to be like, John, build a wall between you and everyone else. It was, you know, mature, get yourself mature, man. Like, you got a long road to hit, a long road to walk. Like, be mature. Don't kill the boy become a man don't but no don't build walls and separate yourself out from the world itself don't be a loner in a cold dark world where you need the community aspect to survive absolutely i mean that's you know that push and pull between emotion and kind of duty comes to define john's character a lot but you can yeah you can already see that in this chapter with him begging to join the night's watch clearly in just a rush to find a new context for him because he senses his time slipping away at winterfell and benji kind of brings him back to reality and then Tyrion pokes him, and John gets all uptight, and then Tyrion has to kind of bring him back to reality. So there's that, there's that, there's that structure, and that's something you've talked about before. You like in this chapter is is the way the roles Benjen and Tyrion play. I do love how Benjen and Tyrion how they challenge John's perspective. Benjen, like I talked about a little bit in the structure portion, Benjen's role is to be like, hey man, like you have these heroes, but. You know, you got to take a step out of the storybook and look at the actual history of what these guys did, because it's not so glorious to to basically win a win a, a pyrrhic victory in taking Dorne and then die anyways for for Darren the first. Like you, you, you got to look at these from a realistic lens because there is there's a hard road ahead of you wherever you go. If you stay at Winterfell, there's a hard road for you. If you come, you swear your vows to the Night's Watch. It's a hard road, and it's not for the idealist necessarily. Um, and then Tyrion's the same sort of has the same sort of role too in this chapter in challenging John and being like, "Dude, just use your your uh, your bastardy as as a shield, as as armor. Where does armor?" Um, and again, we talked about how he doesn't necessarily follow his own advice, but it is good advice all the same. And it is something too that John thinks about, if I'm not mistaken. Like at the, is very is in a Dance with Dragons, he thinks about what Tyrion tells him. But he doesn't remember who actually says it, which is kind of a, a sad note, um, un- unfortunately. Um, but, you know, there's there's lots of little details here to enjoy, right? Absolutely. I love the way Benjen and Tyrion kind of contrast with each other as the story goes on, that Benjen pulls back into the Night's Watch, and John remembers Tyrion as the one who told him what the Night's Watch would really be like. So they contrast off, the, off each other beautifully, uh, even beyond this chapter. And yeah, there's... Yeah, what I really do love about this chapter is you do. You, it is a strong sense of atmosphere. You can feel how hot and crowded and just drunk that room is, and everyone's just kind of yeah. yelling and pushing each other. And there's dogs under the tables, and you know you, you get the sense of this hot and noisy night. Uh, that I, there's this tiny little detail I love that Benjamin grabbed an onion off a trencher and was dripping with gravy, and he bit into it and it crunched. Just a nice <laughs> little bit of one of Martin's favorite things, which is of course food porn. But yep. it's it's a, it's a nice little detail. Um, you okay, so, so get, get, the, get the sensory sensory strength of it. So, did you like this chapter as compared to the first episode in Game of Thrones, where the 
perspective is totally different, right? John isn't even present, if I'm not mistaken, in, in that first episode. Instead, the focus is on Catelyn and Cersei speaking, um, Jamie and Ned confronting each other, um, and then you have Benjen and Ned as well uh, talking with each other, uh, too. Do you prefer one over the other, or do you find them about the same, or...? Or uh, and and I know it's I'm probably putting you on the spot because it's probably been a few years since you've seen the episode itself. I, I do remember liking the little interactions in that episode, especially I mean anything they got Cersei to do was always a gem. Uh, and I and I always I always did want for more of a Catelyn Cersei dynamic or any dynamic to exist in the books because I think those are two characters who would have interesting things to say to one another. And yeah. they do they do that a little bit in the show. They came up with a cut like the famous one by the bedside when Cersei's talking yeah. about the kid. Yeah. So. That is interesting. I, but I, there is, I do like the the below the salt atmosphere, so to speak, of this chapter, where everyone's elbowing each other and everyone's drunk uh, and everyone's yeah. just spelling, spelling stuff, and the singers over there. And you know, I like that's 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 nice because a lot of the dinner scenes in the rest of the series are about being at the high table, especially in King's Landing. Uh, so this is this is a nice just kind of initial contrast to that. And yeah, and there's just true. yeah, there, there's tons of little little details that make this chapter work for me, in spite of uh, my lack of interest in John himself at this point. And like, <laughs> I love that I love that Rickon stops to say hello to John when he's like oh, marching cute, yeah. him towards the high table. It's just tiny little, you know. He he doesn't know not to. He doesn't have any reason not to treat John like he would anyone else in the family because he hasn't been taught that prejudice or he hasn't he's internalized only three years it. Old too. Exactly. He's yeah. That's was it's one of the things I like about you know. One subject that comes up is whether the Stark kids are too young. That's a topic of much discussion in the fandom, especially since the five-year gap got abandoned, uh, which would have aged them up. And I think that's definitely true in some cases. Arya's sexuality is increasingly a little weird in the way Martin is handling it. <laughs> I don't think it's in, I don't think it's intentionally malign or gross, but it's just like he needed that age jump to make it work. Uh, Bran sometimes is a little frustrating in this regard in terms of his age. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, part of me loves it for Rickon just because Rickon, the whole point of Rickon is that he's too young for any of this stuff and there's no way he can process it correctly at all uh, So, and, which mostly is rendered in negative terms that he's just freaking out and sad and depressed and lonely but I like this little hint that Rickon just really loves everyone around him and doesn't want to lose right. any of them and loses all of them and he's the one Stark who's not, you know, he doesn't have an arc, like there's no he doesn't get a special secret mentor uh, the way Sansa, Arya, and Bran all do. He's just trying mm. to survive and get back to his family. And, you know, there's not much of a characterization there, but I think Rickon works True. as a nice little contrast to the rest of his siblings, who all have important destinies, but he's just a kid. So that that's, you know, you can see that, again, there's lots of little seeds being planted in this chapter for where, where these characters are going to go. But, yeah, with John, I mean, we'll see, we, we've, we've talked some about we, what we dislike about this chapter as we've gone along, but what's what's something that you're not too terribly fond of? Yeah, so um, this is something that I will uh, that, that George R. R. Martin has admitted is a, a mistake on his part, and that is the uh, it's a famous one. If you're kind of in deep with the fandom, it's the tumbling Tyrion, um, the thing that happens where you know Tyrion is, is I believe he's sitting uh, on like a door frame or something like that, and he tumbles off the door frame and does a flip in midair and lands in front of John, and John is astonished. And um, what Martin didn't realize is that that is um, impossible for those who who suffer from dwarfism. Uh, they 
cannot do that necessarily, or I guess most can't do that. I'm, unfortunately, again, I got some corrections on 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 my uh, my scientific knowledge about iron. Apparently, iron doesn't have a half life, it but it can rust away. Uh, the same thing goes for dwarfism. I am not an expert on dwarfism, so I'm, I apologize if there are folks who do know a bit more about that than than me. Um, then feel free to say it. But I know that Martin has talked about that that would be impossible for for Tyrion to do. Um, and, and, you know, Martin kind of retcons it later on in A Dance with Dragons after he realizes his heir and he talks about how Tyrion was, you know, used to walk on his hands on the table in front of Tywin and Tywin's brothers and Tywin's brothers thought it was hilarious. And Tywin's like, you know, you know stop being a freaking, you know, are, are you a monkey or are you a, um, a mummer? You know, you can you can be a mummer or you can be a Lannister, but you can't be both at the same time. Uh, that, that dynamic that exists in *The Dance of Dragons* and Tyrion's reflections on his father and how of an awful shitty person his father was, which is going to be explored in significant depth in Tyrion's chapters. Uh, another thing I, I was kind of not a huge fan of in this chapter is the stilted dialogue. John, when he speaks, is kind of—I don't, I don't know the best way to put it—but besides stilted, like he, everything he says, it almost like he's being fed lines by by the author. It doesn't feel organic to the situation. Uh, to, to the way that John speaks, or at least later on, you know, in A Dance with Dragons, especially, John's dialogue feels very real, uh, even though he's often, or not often, but occasionally in the wrong in, in what he's saying, and he's obviously, quote unquote, obviously right. It, it does feel more organic to him as a character, as the character is developed, and it kind of feels that John isn't as developed as a character in Martin's mind when he's writing this chapter, but. You know, it, it's again, it's not it's not my favorite chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire, but it is it's an okay chapter. I mean, it's even a good chapter, I guess. I mean, for a lot of the other things we talk about, but it's you know, it's it's not as it's it's not a good chapter because of what John brings to it. It's a good chapter for the events happening around John, and I think that's kind of my um, uh, my measuring stick is is determining whether a chapter is like excellent or one of my favorites is how Martin will integrate the character into the chapter itself or will fail to integrate the chapter into the character or fail to integrate the character into the chapter. And this one, I, I do feel that Martin maybe didn't fail, but he didn't necessarily strike as, as, as strong of a mark as he does in later John chapters. Yeah, here's, here's how I think about it. Like, you have your structure, you plan out your book, you know how you want your story to unfold, you know how you want each POV to work into that, you got the basic beats and rhythm down, and then... A lot of what writing and rewriting is is covering up the structure and making it not terribly obvious. And, yes. You know, a lot of part of that is making what the characters say and do seem organic, seem like they're thinking of it in the moment, and that's a product of their rich psychologies and backstories and pressures in the moment. And with John early on, the structure is is not is insufficiently covered up. It's just John is saying the things he needs to say for the story in yeah. that moment. And for his later development, it's it's kind of plugged in, and it's all it's correct, and it's well structured. It's not it's not messy or sloppy, like it's not overdone or bloated, or there's not stuff that doesn't need to be there. But it feels just kind of rote and rigid at this point. And you know, one of the things we've talked about in previous chapters is, is how familiar and fluid Martin is with a lot of the POVs, and John and Danny especially are paralleled throughout the entire series in the number of different ways that we'll talk about in much greater detail later on <laughs> but right away you can see in their first chapters they're both attending dinner parties uh you know there's, there's they're both trying to observe the power dynamics at play in the room there's an emphasis on what older mentor figures are telling them and teaching them uh viserys in D danny's case 
Uh, of course, you know, Danny's at the center of attention, whereas John is being shunted off to the side, but you know, with Danny, he it really does feel organic and really does feel like this character is responding naturally to what's happening. It doesn't feel like just being, you know, hero origin story plugged in here, whereas with yeah. John, it does feel a little stiff in that way. Like, this is what, again, this is what needs to be happening with John. Whereas, you know, later later on in the books, you know, it, it's still the, the beats are still very clear, but it, it feels like it's springing from a conflict within him when he spares Egret's life, uh, all the decisions, little decisions he has to make when he's undercover with the wildlings, uh, his his struggles with Stannis, both in terms of whether to accept his offer and whether uh, how to work with him in dance, all the decisions he makes in terms of being a Lord Commander. For me, those all, those all stem from a really clear and well-defined internal struggle, identity debate going on within John's mind. Yeah, uh, and, and early on, the 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 struggle is is not quite as well-defined. It's not quite as 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 gripping. There's, it's it's just there's, there's it's not quite as rich as the other characters going on. It it might it's again it's not bad as we've said several times, but it. It does suffer in context with a lot of the other stuff going on in this first book, and compared to where Martin goes with John later. Yeah, no, I I totally agree that that John does not have that kind of easy fluidity and intimacy that we we get later on, and then I think that's it's to the detriment, and it does kind of contrast with those early Ned, Cat, and Danny chapters, which are also which are amazingly uh, fluid, and you feel thrown into the world immediately. And Martin does a magnificent job. You know, especially in Danny's chapter of introducing us to um, a world away from Winterfell, because or or from the Wall, uh, and then that's just a, a cool way that he does it. But you know, John's, you know, not not as good as it as it could have been, but it's not not terrible by any stretch. Like like Emma talked about, it's 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 well structured, it's well written, it just doesn't feel as dynamic. Um, but it gets you know, the job done. It just does, it doesn't. It yeah. gets the job done. It just doesn't do much more than that. Yeah, you're you're right, and and it gets the job done. But you know, there's also the cool thing about this chapter is that there's a whole lot of uh, connections and groundwork that gets built into the rest of a Song of Ice and Fire from this this short little chapter. If I'm not mistaken, it is our shortest chapter so far, but I'm, there are, there are shorter ones coming after this one. But there's a there's a whole lot of stuff going on in this chapter that might not. Uh, meet the eye. So do you want to talk a little bit about the connection between R plus L equals J, which we got last week in Ned's first chapter, and his younger brother Benjamin a little bit? Sure. One interesting question that's always come up with the R plus L equals J backstory is how much Benjamin knows about it as the other surviving Stark sibling. Uh, Benjamin is frequently connected to Leon in the backstory. He comes up as uh, the one who's always kind of toying and teasing and playing with her, both at Harrenhal and in the Vision Brand sees when yep. he flashes back at the Winterfell Heart Tree. So they seem to have been very close. Uh, he, you know, he helped arrange for Howland Reed to join their party in Harrenhal. So there's just kind of a history of those two working together. Uh, I'd be very surprised if he didn't know about the Night of the Laughing Tree, certainly, uh, and that probably and that was how Rhaegar first encountered Lyanna. So there is the possibility that Benjin helped set that up or knew about it or was was involved somehow. Because, yeah, the way he talks to John at certain points, like when he says in this chapter, John says with anger that he, I'm not your son to Benjin, and Benjin says, more's the pity. Yeah, which is, yeah. Is certainly an interesting thing to say. Uh, 
he could just be, of course, reflecting that maybe you wouldn't be a bastard in that case. But right. it also could suggest that what Benjamin is saying is that your life really would be easier if you weren't, if you didn't have this secret about who you were. Um, doesn't he also, also say yeah, to that? Doesn't he also say to that um, something along the lines of John? You don't know what you'd be giving up if you swore our vows, or, or is that in this chapter? Is that the next John chapter? I don't. That is this chapter. Part. That's yeah. That's true. Uh, so yeah, there, that, that could possibly reveal he knows more than he's letting on. Um, and also, you know, again, he's just the last left in that family. You know, he's the sibling of both Ned and Liana. You'd think if Ned was going to tell anybody, or you know, if Benjamin. I, for me, it's like Benjamin's. Benjamin would have questions about Ned fathering a bastard that Ned would find difficult to answer. Like I right. get why I get why Robert accepted it because for Robert, as we'll see later on, Robert finds it kind of adorable that cold stoic Ned Stark fathered a bastard. Like that that pleases Robert. That makes him think, Ah, see, you're, we're not so different, you and I. You, he says, like it must have been a rare wench to make you forget your honor. Like he wants to know. It makes him that that, that is something that cheers Robert up. Uh, but I get the feeling Benjamin would... He's the one that wouldn't buy it. Like, he's the one right. who knows Ned well enough and knows what was going on in there well enough to think, like, no, you wouldn't do that. What's the actual explanation here? And that right. Ned would have difficulty lying to Benjamin about Liana's kid, especially having just lost her, lost their dad, lost their older brother. So there's there's no hard and fast evidence, but I, I do lean towards Benjamin knowing about it. And maybe, that, maybe that'll become relevant when Benjamin uh, returns to the books, assuming he does. Gosh, I really hope he does, and I hope he doesn't go out like he did in season seven of Game of Thrones, because that just—I I, won't—I won't—I won't speak to my irritation on that. But uh, but I was kind of like, come on, man! You bring Benjamin back, and then you, in season six, briefly, and then you bring him back very briefly in season seven to save Jon Snow's life, and then he dies without revealing anything. I just want confirmation. I was talking about this on Tumblr the other day that about what an insane, colossal, offstage badass he's been. It's the last time yeah. we saw him because it was probably him that left the the cachet, at the fist of the first man wrapped up in the cloak with the dragon. Well, was well. probably the horn of winter. I know D- Jeff has a different di- opinion about this, and we'll get to this <laughs> later on. We have we have a special debate topic planned for tonight, so we can't we can't uh, stuff the the docket too much on that count. But even if that wasn't him, Benjamin's uh, been up to some crazy stuff right. on the wall that I want to hear at length about. I, not just pop back in, but I want to hear what he's been up to. Uh, and yeah, he might have something to do with the R plus L equals J reveal, although we'll see Howland Reed also has to play some kind of role there as well. I agree. And I do think that uh, I, I would hope that Benjamin comes back in some way that has a resonance to uh, John finding out about R plus L equals J, uh, whether that it, it would most likely occur after um, John is, is resurrected. In fact, it would almost certainly have to, right? I'm, I'm kind of talking about wall here. Um, but uh but yeah, so I, I would be, I would, in, I, I also lean towards Benjamin having some knowledge of R plus L equals J. I think that would be a, a cool reveal to have later on that Benjamin, all of the stuff he talks about with John in this chapter, uh, has some payoff uh, somewhere down the line, hopefully in Winds or, or in Dream whenever Benjamin shows up again, which I have to assume that he's going to show up again. I think that Martin has said as much, although I, that that point I'm not 100% sure on. Um, but another interesting thing too in this chapter is a kind of a, a, an interesting connection that we find out is that uh, John, uh, we, we talked a little bit earlier about how Robert, you know, has is laughing and, you know, at, at 
at Ned's bastard. Um, but Cersei is not laughing because Cersei has known that Robert has fathered a number of bastards throughout the Seven Kingdoms and has done horrible things to a few of them and does horrible things to one of them in the show, but that in the books. Um, or is it actually Cersei does it in the books? I got that backwards. Barra uh, is Yeah, she, she does do it in the books, right? It's uh, Allardine. Jaina Slim yeah. and Howard Deem, if I recall correctly. Yeah, you're right. We'll, we'll get to I that in so. Clash of Kings. We'll get, we'll get to that in Clash, yep. Yeah, that's, 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 those are good stuff. Um, but in this chapter, uh, John um, takes notice of Cersei and he thinks that she's angry, but he thinks that Cersei doesn't pay any attention to him. But as we find out later in Feast for Crows, Cersei actually does pay attention to John. So to bring you guys back into focus a little bit, uh, in Feast, Cersei, in her delusional state, begins to believe that Jon Snow is a threat to her. And she has she starts conspiring this or willing together this grand, weird conspiracy where she's going to send one of the um, Kettle Black boys up to the wall to murder John. And uh, she says, um, when she's thinking about this, after John's election as the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch is brought up by Grandmaster Bissell, she thinks, quote, I glimpsed him, that is John, once at Winterfell, the Queen said, though the Starks did their best to hide him, he looks very like his father, unquote. Classic Cersei Lannister right there. Uh, She gets a... um, She actually is a little bit right because the Starks did their best to try and hide them, or Catelyn Stark did. Uh, as we talked about before. But of course, Cersei being Cersei, she gets it very wrong and that he, he looks like very like his father. Well, I guess she doesn't get it totally wrong, but she gets it wrong in that that's not where John's getting his looks from. He's getting it from uh, Ned's uh, sister, Lyanna. Absolutely. I love the yeah, grand weird conspiracy is basically the, could be the <laughs> title of Cersei's entire plot in the Feast for Crows. Uh, just you know, an endless series of plans that collapse in on themselves and never <laughs> and and never happen. I love how most of her plots ne- they just fizzle out. Like the plot to assassinate John doesn't come to anything. The plot to assassinate Tristan Martell is probably not going to come to anything because she's no. bad at this. So her plans really they, they don't they don't even take off. They just explode in the hangar because they 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 just they're always <laughs> ridiculous. Um, they, but that's they are. that'll be a fun subject for feast. It's just the endless drunken tirades of Cersei Lannister. But yeah, I never noticed that. That's a very nice touch that uh, John thinks he's invisible to everyone on the high table, but the one he would never suspect to notice him. In fact, he did take note of him. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting too. It's a it's a connection too because Cersei is obsessed with Robert's bastard. So of course, Cersei wouldn't would pick out John as being Ned Stark's bastard because she has an eye for that sort of thing because of her own personal hurts as a result of being married to a man who is a con- a constant philanderer and constantly breaking the vows of marriage that he's taken in order to father bastards all over the Seven Kingdoms. So yeah, it, it makes total sense that Cersei would take notice of John and would, well, I mean, not that she would mark him for death in A Feast for Crows because that doesn't make any sense whatsoever, but it would you would kind of understand why there's some underlying anger um, in Cersei's point of view about John and about his bastardy. Um, the other thing that we find out here in this chapter, or actually later on in A Storm of Swords, is that Mance Raider is apparently at this feast. In Storm, Mance Raider tells John that he saw him twice. Uh, the first time was when Mance came to Winterfell when John was a boy, and that at this point Mance was a member of the Night's Watch in good standing and one of the best rangers. Actually, he was the best ranger, if I'm remembering uh, what Corn Halfhand says in A Clash of Kings. But the second time that Mance Raider sees John is when Mance Raider posed as a free rider listening to the High Harpist play. 
And this is what he tells John in uh, John's first chapter in Storm of Swords. He says, quote, the night your father feasted Robert, I sat in the back of his hall on a bench with the other free riders, listening to Orland of Old Town play the I harp and sing of dead kings beneath the sea. And then we compare that to what John is hearing in this chapter. John hears, quote, a singer was playing the high harp, that is Orland of Old Orland of Old Town, and reciting a ballad, but down at the end of the hall, his voice could scarcely be heard above the roar of the fire, unquote. So this is kind of a, an interesting one because uh, Em and I were both talking in pre-production here. We, we don't think that George initially envisioned Mance Rider being at the Winterfell Feast. You know, in Catelyn's chapter, we get this um, mention that Cat says that Mance is gathering the, the free folk to his cause well north of the Wall. And, you know, we find out in Clash of Kings that Mance is in the Frostfangs, which is very not. I mean, it's not like up at the lands of always winter north, but it is very much north of the wall, like by a couple hundred miles, if I'm not mistaken. But, yeah, we don't think that George originally had Mance this feast here, but it ended, ended up being something of retcons later down the road. What do you think of a cool way to introduce Mance Raider to John and to the reader? Yeah, it's a brilliantly smooth little retcon because, yeah, there's I mean, obviously, Martin plans a lot of things early on that he picks up on later, but this one seems more like a case where, as Mance gradually developed as a character in his mind, as he got the idea, because it fits so smoothly with everything we know about Mance later. The, the interesting kind of paternal relationship he develops with John and his relationship to Winterfell and the Bale the Bard story, and then everything he gets up to and dance, it, it all that, that all fits perfectly. Uh, so I think it was it was definitely a retcon, but I think it's 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 an impressive one. It's a, a standard for how to do a nice little this kind of backdoor change to to your story. I think he left himself just enough room. It doesn't contradict anything. It fits the character. Yeah, it, it works great. It's a Mance Mance is a, is a lot of fun to talk about in this regard because uh, he he resonates in a lot of different weird little directions. There's all the stuff with him and Rhaegar. Not that they're the same person. You you have to burn in seven hells if you believe that. But there are in, but there are interesting and clearly deliberate parallels between the two. Sure. And he sets up his own parallels with Bale the Bard. So he's an interesting. He's a slippery character, a tricksy bird, as Tormund calls him. So he's going to be fun to talk about. He yeah, absolutely is going to be a lot of fun, and I I, I really enjoy uh, Mance Raider and his uh, meaning and purpose in in Jon's arc, and I, and I really like that connection you point out with Mance and, and Abel. Or rather, bail the bard, and then becoming able down the road, and how that would that would make sense of Mance infiltrating Winterfell, in the um, uh, not in disguise as as Bale the bard, but in in you know uh, in in similar fashion as as Bale does in thousands of years, or however many hundreds or thousands of years it was before uh, in this chapter, and then finally uh, in the. Last uh, groundwork or connection is uh, something that is my favorite. I always try and save the, my favorite for the last, and that is more abandoned foreshadowing. So if you recall in Catelyn's first chapter, we talked about George's 1993 letter and how different the plot of A Game of Thrones was that he originally envisioned and how that changed between the um, the pitch letter and what actually shook out in the um, the published version of A Game of Thrones. We talked about in Catelyn's first chapter how Catelyn... Uh, talks about fearing of the dark, has a fear of the darker things that lie north of the wall, and how this is likely intended to foreshadow uh, Catelyn's originally envisioned arc end of her fleeing north of the wall and dying at the hands of the others. But here in this John chapter, we get some, we get a hint of something else that George originally intended for a song of ice and fire, but he later abandoned in favor of another, and I would say much, much better story. So. In the 1993 letter, George had a really interesting idea of how Jamie Lannister's arc would go. 
and this is what he says, quote, Jamie Lannister will follow Joffrey on the throne of the Seven Kingdoms by the simple expedient of killing everyone ahead of him in the line of succession and blaming his brother Tyrion. In A Game of Thrones, John 1, we get John's thoughts about Jamie. John thinks, quote, they called him the Lion Lannister to his face and whispered Kingslayer behind his back. John found it hard to look away from him. This is what a king should look like, he thought to himself as the man passed. Unquote. And, you know, this is interesting because um, it, it's fascinating in a number of, of ways. Probably the most fascinating for me is that George decided to go the exact opposite way um, in Jamie Lannister's arc. Instead of him uh, trying to claw his way to the top, he is constantly attempting to forsake his um, greater and responsibility and leadership. For instance, in A Storm of Swords, Tywin Lannister says, oh, now that you've lost your hand, you can become the Lord of Casterly Rock. You can resign the King's Guard, the White Cloak, and become uh, the Lord of Casterly Rock. And Jamie says, no, I'm, I'm, there's, there's nothing in the King's Guard oaths that say, because I lost my hand, I forsake my oaths. And then you have Cersei in Feast for Crows talking about how she wants Jamie to be her hand, her hand of the King, or rather Tommen's hand of the King. Uh, and he refuses that as well, because he is the Lord Commander of the King's Guard. So it's interesting that George decided to take Jamie's arc in the exact opposite direction that he had originally planned for for Jamie killing his way to the to the top of, of, of the pecking order and becoming king of, of Westeros and then blaming his brother Tyrion. I mean, you do have some elements of that blaming Tyrion side which come in, but it is um, a, a, it is much different in that Tyrion gets blamed for um, the death the death of Tywin Lannister, rightfully so. Um, but Jamie uh, Jamie um, kind of stays quiet about it, about his role in, in helping Tyrion uh, kill his father. Absolutely, and you have Tyrion framed for killing Joffrey instead of actually killing Joffrey. Uh, yeah. It's, it's interesting to, to wonder if Jamie killing Cersei was part of the original draft, or that's something that developed later on. But yeah, like you say, he really ran 180 with Jamie in the actual books, and I think he did something similar with Sansa, or if you look at the pitch letter, Sansa was supposed to stay in love with Joffrey and forsake her family. And Father children, excuse me. Right. Uh, have kids with Joffrey. Have kids with Joffrey, uh, and then when you get to the final, the, the final draft of the Game of Thrones, by the end she forsakes that completely and spends the next couple books performing that outwardly while inwardly kind of seething and, and wanting to get home and hating Joffrey. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting to consider the areas where he's deepened and improved these characters. But yeah, that's that's a blatant sign that quote from John. And that gets a lot, a lot of the stiffness that I like going back to this chapter. It's, it's yeah. weird that he thinks that about Jamie, just in a number of ways that he would be impressed by this particular kind of guy. Uh, it's it, it stands out in that no one ever says anything about like that about Jamie ever again. Like even Cersei <laughs> doesn't think about him that way because, yeah, like you say later in the stories he rejects power. Everyone seems to think of him as kind of a dupe a lot of the time, or just kind of like the least. Not totally sm- unfounded. Not totally unfounded, but he's just the least ambitious of Tywin's kids and the least interested in running the show. Uh, so it just stands out strongly. It's the only time Jamie is ever described in that context. And it is, it is very weird to go back to and realize that there was an entirely different arc that was supposed to happen for this guy. Uh, and I much, yeah, I much prefer where, where they ended up, but you can, it's still like, like, a, like part of a bridge they just never finished building. It's still just sitting there, quietly rotting. Uh, yeah, but you know, yeah, that's part of the fun coming back to the first book. It is, and it, it is fun looking at the things that George is like. Well, I'm not going to edit that part out. I guess that works in 
in some way in, in crafting John is, and, and I would say that maybe if we go back to what I was talking about at the very start, the top of the podcast about how John, how life is not a song for John, that John, George can say, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm building that foundation by say, by having John look at Jamie and you know mistakenly see uh, what a king should look like when no one else sees that because John is delusional similar to to Sansa but you know it, it does kind of stick out especially now that we have that this his original pitch letter and what he originally visioned for for Jamie and uh and uh also blaming Tyrion too which is I find that a really interesting turn and twist from what we actually get uh in in the the arcs itself um but you know Tyrion uh now that we have the the, we, the, you know, the chapter closes with, with Tyrion, right? And being that Tyrion is definitely the bastard of Aerys II, it's really important that we discuss, you know, Tyrion being that super totally confirmed bastard of, of Aerys II, because I think that's really important um, to, to get at the heart of that, right? Right, Emmett? Yeah? You, you may think Jeff's being sarcastic here, folks. You may think he's pulling <laughs> one of his classic Brendan Beefish switcheroos. But I hesitate to inform you that he's playing this absolutely straight. <sighs> no way. The man genuinely believes what he's saying. And now we have arrived at the Tyrion-Targ debate. One of the biggest and most raging debates in the fandom. Because that really starts here in this chapter. And, um, you know, this is actually going to be the first time that, uh, that Emmett and I are, are going to disagree. You know, politely, of course. We'll have a nice little discussion about Tyrion-Targaryen. And about the different strengths and weaknesses of the arguments uh, uh, herein. Well, I mean, I guess I'll start by talking about it this way. I, I don't want this theory to be true. I don't necessarily want Tyrion to be a, a bastard son of Aerys II. And I was talking with uh, our, our friend uh, Eliana a, a few days ago about this, and we both had the same thought: is that we're like, you know, there's there's evidence, I guess, for it, but we don't want Tyrion to be another Targaryen bastard. I mean, there's a whole lot of, you know, uh, fake Targaryens in, in Aegon or Young Griff, and then you have Targaryens who are, don't know that they're Targaryens like Jon Snow. Do we need another another Targaryen in, in Tyrion Lannister? No, I would say you don't need another Tyrion, another Targaryen in the, in the person of Tyrion Lannister or Tyrion uh, Targaryen, if you if you want to go it that way, but at the same time, I guess I, I see that George has put enough evidence in the books that Tyrion Targaryen is at least plausible. Absolutely, I think for me, yeah, the the categories of not wanting it to be true and thinking it's not going to be true definitely merge into one. I definitely, yeah, dislike. The theory, kind of just in just in context with the other characters, because if it, I would believe it 100% if it were not for R plus L equals J, but imagining yeah. how this is going to be executed, like, we're going to have the John revelation that he's Rhaegar's son, and then, like, the camera's going to swoop to Tyrion and say, and you too are a secret, like, it, again, well, execution, an author can execute something any number of ways that you never see coming, so it could be well, done very well, but part of me feels like that sounds... Like a bad decision. It sounds like that's going to feel repetitive or yeah. nowhere. Because well, I mean, I, well, like there, there is, there is plenty. There is evidence for it in in the well, text, of course. I, I would, uh, I would, I would, I would be in the camp that Tyrion's lineage will not be dis de decisively determined one way or the other. 
I'm in the camp that it's not going to be like a camera swoop from, you know, John Snow emerges as John Targaryen or whatever John, uh, you know, John Targaryen if Rhaegar and uh, Lyanna actually married, which seems to be, I guess, the case if you take if you buy the show's version of it, um, or a Targaryen bastard if they didn't get married. Um, but I I don't know, and I would suspect that it won't necessarily be conclusively proven one way or the other. But it, let, let me just go through some of the the evidence here, kind of the bullet point things and then I'll, I'll allow you to kind of like cut in when you need to and kind of like give me a black eye and then I'll kind of get to my corner and like take a swig of water and then I'll come back out in the ring and, and, and fight you about it a little bit more. Sounds good, Sugar Ray. Okay. So in this chapter, in the John chapter, there's a couple um, different things that are talked about in this chapter, which do provide I would say present a little bit of evidence for Tyrion Targaryen. You have a couple things that John mentions that gets again repeated often, and that's Tyrion's mismatched eyes, um, which is kind of weird because all the Lannisters have the same colored eyes. I believe they are blonde-haired and blue-eyed, if I'm not mistaken. Am I right about that? I actually don't know. I believe you are right about that, yeah. Okay, I could be wrong. I'm sure we'll get corrected if rightfully so by people, by the plebs, if, if we're wrong exactly. on that. Um, Tyrion's hair color. Uh, the Lannisters have what I would call platinum blonde hair. Um, seemingly Cersei and Jaime and Tywin have this um, not like not the type of hair that Tyrion has because Tyrion has white blonde hair. And then you have also have this other thing too where Tyrion has open doubts that his father is as he truly says. John says, you are your mother's true-born son of Lannister. And Tyrion replies, am I? Do tell my lord father, my mother died birthing me, and he's never been sure. And then the final thing from this chapter is the very last line of the chapter, which is, quote, for a moment Tyrion stood as tall as a king, unquote, which potentially provides evidence for maybe Tyrion having a more of a royal lineage than, than is being led on uh, here in this chapter. Yeah, that's it's that's all definitely indicative. It's, it's so hard to tell. I mean, one thing that's comes up a lot with Martin's language, especially when it comes to theorizing, is okay, is this meant literally, or is this yeah. meant, like, sarcastically, situationally? Like, when Tywin says, when it's like, yeah, I cannot prove you are not mine, or Tyrion saying that Tywin's always wondered about him, like, is that supposed to be a clue? Or are we supposed to take that as Tywin cannot stand Tyrion so much that he wishes it was true, Yeah, and that's how he expresses it? Is it supposed to be legit, or is it supposed to be Tywin being an asshole? Because we know he's an asshole, and we know he's right. that kind of asshole. So which is it? And, it's like, and that's what's tough for me, because you can see a complete coherent arc either way. You can see either one of those making sense, I think, that it's supposed to be a hinted Tyrion Targaryen, or it's supposed to be just that's the kind of bastard Tywin is, that he just openly talks like this about his son. Yeah. It's it's tough. I mean, it's... Well, it's, it's you know... Yeah, go th- ahead. There's, there's the third pathway, too, which is that George has intentionally put a, a false trail for for readers so that Tyrion so that readers will come to the conclusion that Tyrion is a Targaryen when it's actually a red herring um, which is something that George kind of likes to do at some point as well when you have things like the Lannisters poison John Aaron which isn't the case but he lays a pretty strong bread trail or breadcrumb trail from um, starting in the next chapter in the Catelyn chapter we're going to be talking about next week uh, on, on forward but as we find out it's actually Lysa Aaron who poisoned John Aaron so, so George does do that thing too where it, it's not necessarily could be true it could be that George never intended it it could be that George intends it to be a, a false trail that leads to a, a false conclusion and there's some sort of greater reveal about who Tyrion Lannister is as a person 
and how he might resemble someone like like Tywin more than more than than he believes and more than he lets on. Yeah, that's certainly true. I mean, there are there are a lot of hints that make this open up the possibility of this, open up the keep this in the back of our minds. I mean, even more than the text, there's the quotes in World of Ice and Fire that uh, you've been looking at. Yeah, uh, they definitely they definitely hint in that direction. Yeah, so there's there's a bunch of things in the World of Ice and Fire, and um, in uh, a fellow po- a podcast, uh, a podcast of Ice and Fire, which is basically the godfather of a song of Ice and Fire podcast, they interviewed uh, Elio and Linda, or rather, they interviewed Elio and Linda and um, the the George's co-authors for the World of Ice and Fire. And they had said that, yeah, when we read what George was submitting to us, we were like, this kind of does present a little more evidence for the the idea that Tyrion may be a Targaryen. So I'll just briefly go through it because there is uh, there's a lot of stuff here. There, there's enough stuff here, I would say, um, in the world of Ice and Fire that kind of lends I would that I would say lends the theory a little bit of weight. Um, you have a couple things like that Joanna Lannister, that is Tywin's eventual wife, gave up. There is a rumor that Joanna Lannister gave up her maidenhead to Aerys II at his father's coronation. And, uh, you know, it's described as a scurrilous rumor by uh, Grand Maester Bissell, who is a uh, Lannister toady, as we find out in A Game of Thrones and A Clash of Kings. So when Pacell calls it or Pycelle calls it a scurrilous rumor, we have to be like, mm, you are maybe covering for your... Uh, your, your boy Tywin there. And then later on, uh, Rayella, who is the um, wife of Aerys II, eventually becomes the wife of Aerys II, dismisses Joanna from her service because, quote, Aerys was turning her ladies in waiting into, quote, unquote, whores. And then Joanna seldom visits King's Landing after that until 272, six years after Jamie and Cersei are born. Um, at this point, Ares demands that Tywin brings that Tywin bring Joanna to court. He makes a bunch of lewd remarks about her breasts, and then the next day, Tywin tries to resign his handship. Ares refuses, and then coincidentally, or not coincidentally, depending on your perspective, Tyrion is born in two seventy three. Now the timeline is a bit vague here, and it's intentionally vague, I would say. But there's hinting or a red herring embedded here that perhaps Tyrion was born nine months after Ares and Joanna see each other for the first time in, in six years. So those are some of the things that the World of Ice and Fire seems to do to hint towards Tyrion Targaryen. And I was curious, I've actually been really curious about whether you had a, a response to some of the stuff that came out in, you know, in the World of Ice and Fire, because when it came out in 2014, I was one of those people that was very anti-Tyrion Targ until the World of Ice and Fire came out. And I found the stuff in that air is the second chapter to be really um, devastating to my own arguments. I felt like, and, and that there, that George had put a lot of effort into seemingly wanting to prove or offer a red herring about Tyrion Targaryen. So I'm curious what your um, perspective was on, on what the world of ice and fire did to your own point of view about Tyrion Targaryen. Yeah. It's definitely either providing evidence for it or just fanning it to keep the flames alive and keep it a source of debate because I was yeah, interested when you said it might not be revealed. It would certainly be interesting to have just Tyrion become a dragon rider, because I think that's where a lot of this is pointing in the in the in the books and not offer an explanation and have just like kind of a hint hint for those in the know to find it out about it. That I could I could see that happening. But yeah, the evidence in World of Ice and Fire definitely demonstrates that, like I said, Martin either wants to prove it or just keep it alive. But it is yeah, it's such a crucial topic to stick in just in World of Ice and Fire. And it's, yeah, for me, the contrast with R plus L equals J is so interesting because so much of the setup for that comes in this first book. 
uh, as, as we discussed when we were talking about Eddard one, and then to have this other huge revelation about a Targaryen parentage kind of be tucked into the world book. I mean, obviously, I love the world book. It was very popular among the fandom, but a lot of people are casual readers, you know, don't read it or don't know about it or won't have access to the information within it. So it's it's a lot to hinge on that. Uh, but on the other hand, there is there is stuff for it in the text, like you mentioned in this chapter. There's a few lines with uh, Tywin. Um, it comes up in, with Barristan, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, so like Brie Barristan... I mean, who is who is an idiot by it? Well, he, yeah, he's he is pretty dumb. Um, I, as much as I love his point of view in, in *A Dance with Dragons*, um, he's before he becomes a point of view character. Um, when Daenerys is on her way to uh, her own wedding with um, his daughter Loric, uh, she asks uh, uh, Barristan about her her mother and whether uh, Eris and her mother shared any affection for each other. And Barristan kind of hems and halls and. You know, he doesn't really say anything um, except for besides talking a little bit about how um, Eris apparently had, quote unquote, taken liberties with Joanna Lannister during her betting. And um, I, I find that actually personally, you know, as, as much as I lean towards Tar- Tyrion Targaryen at this juncture, I, I do find that kind of a weaker ish argument in so much as um, it, it really kind of reads more like maybe. Ares copped a feel when he really shouldn't have, and you know, Ares taking any liberties whatsoever uh, around time in Lannister would be considered an, an insult, um, and also it would be for Barristan, who is extremely prudish and extremely—I um, mean, he's definitely—I'm almost positive he's a—he's a virgin in, in his sixty-third year in a Dance with Dragons. Um, that that Barristan would be would call it, you know, taking excessive liberties, regardless of what Ares did. Uh, in that. Um, but there was one final thing uh, about it, and I think this is where the argument is going to, to hinge uh, on it. And, I, and I, I, this is something that I don't really like as an argument. So I, I only bring it up because it is something that is brought up on occasion by th- those who are debating it. So uh, I'll set it up this way. In 2007, George R. R. Martin, um, <laughs> this is going to sound kind of crazy, but just bear with me. In 2007, George R. R. Martin made an appearance in the game Second Life as the character Tyrion Lannister. So in Second Life is a, a, a massively multiplayer online RPG game where you kind of build stuff and it's it's not very interesting. I played it for about a month when I was in college and I was like, nah, this is not interesting at all to me. But, you know, some people like it and that's fine. If you like the game, you know, I'm not here to judge you, although it's very boring. Um, but um, but in in that he he came he appeared as Tyrion Lannister and he read a a Tyrion chapter from A Dance with Dragons as a sample chapter, and then afterwards he he reported on his not a blog um, about how much fun he had doing this this silly appearance as as Tyrion in Second Life. But he also had this really interesting hint where he says, "quote Only this version of Tyrion could fly." This is the version from Second Life, of course. Ah, if only Tyrion the books could fly. What mischief he will, uh, could? Ah, never mind. Uh, So a lot of people, to include myself, have taken that as a very clear uh, extra book hint that Tyrion will be a a dragon rider of of some sort. Um, But this is where the, the, this is the weaker point, though. So there is a, though, so the, another thing that the World of Ice and Fire does for for better or for worse, and I think for worse in my my personal opinion, is that it potentially alludes to the fact that Valyrian blood is needed for dragon riding and dragon binding. 
So does this mean that Tyrion having the blood of Aerys the second Targaryen and the Targaryen the lineage and genetics in him uh, is a prerequisite for him becoming a dragon rider? And I, and I really, and, you know, I, I hesitate to bring it up altogether because it does bring up a lot of kind of uncomfortable, if not sort of immoral, like genetics, like genetic superiority and that blood will one blood is more superior than another form of blood and, and, and that sort of stuff. But at least in the world of ice and fire, there is, um, there is blood magic and blood connection between dragons and Valyrians that comes, especially in the uh, pre doom of Valyria sections from the world of ice and fire. But I don't really like this argument a whole lot. And I think there is evidence that there is the potential for dragon writing occurring um, from those who are actually not of Valyrian ancestry. Absolutely. Uh, you know, Martin has a penchant for revealing statements about Tyrion and about the dragon riders in this regard. Because there's that quote you mentioned, then there's his other quote about uh, three heads has the dragon, yes, but the third head will not necessarily be a Targaryen, which has led to a lot of speculation that uh, Tyrion might be the third dragon rider while also not being a Targaryen. But, you know, that could be parsed in a number of ways. Maybe it's one Tyrion or Jon doesn't count because they, you know, weren't given the birth name Targaryen, so maybe he's right. talking about that. It could, it could mean any number of things. It's, it's, it's tough. The, the possibility is, is, is certainly there. I think there's there's also, like, you know, there's there's ways of taming a dragon that have been put forward in the text that aren't directly connected to Valyrian, uh, having Valyrian blood, like Dragonbinder or Bran's warging and skin changing. There's the theory that Bran might warg in to let Tyrion ride in the same way Tyrion designed a new saddle for Bran in the first book. Uh, there's Makuro, who's getting up to all, all sorts of magical mischief in the area. But yeah, it's not a theory I'm opposed to. I don't think it would destroy the character his dynamics. It's just when I think about the execution is where it gets weird. But I think the basis yeah. for it is certainly strong, especially as you pointed out, all those quotes in World of Ice and Fire uh, very clearly point in that direction. Uh, and, you know, there's, 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 enough that I won't be, there's enough that I won't be surprised either way, is I guess how I would put it. Yeah, so I this is a a point our friend Aziz from History of Westeros has made, and I think it's a point that we can we can we can conclude in, in agreement on. Um, even though we had an extremely polite debate, man, we gotta like get like real like fired up or like get like super like shit hammered and, and start like fighting about some of these theories or something like that. Where I forgot to say I hate you and you're ugly. It's yeah, true. Fuck you too. <laughs> exactly. Now we're getting it. Now we got the spirit. Um, so this is the, the final point. Again, this is something that Aziz of, of History of Westeros had brought up. Um, one of the arguments against Tyrion Targaryen has been that it would ruin uh, Tyrion's uh, relationship with his father. And I think both Emmett and I would say that the, it would not ruin um, Tyrion's relationship with Tywin and being um, no true son of mine versus being, uh, ah, Tyrion was the one who was actually Tywin's son. In the, in the same way that... John being revealed as the son of Rhaegar and Lyanna will not ruin his relationship with Ned and that in so much as that it will kind of ruin his relationship in universe, but it won't mean that all the lessons on leadership and what it means to be a Stark and all the things that Ned attempted to impart into John don't bear itself out in John's characterization. And the same probably goes for, for Tyrion too. If he ends up being Aerys' bastard at some level, it's not going to mean that he's not Tywin's son because he, as the books progress, he becomes more and more like Tywin Lannister. And I think that is a defining feature and trait 
in Tyrion Lannister, and it's something that I am really looking forward to discussing when we get to the Tyrion chapters, especially in, I mean, in Game of Thrones, because the Tyrion chapters I haven't read in, in probably about three years now. It was the last time I actually went through the Tyrion chapters. Yeah, it's, and it really is all seated there. Like, there's a point, I think, in his second chapter in this book where he tells John about having set fires in the basement of Casterly Rock and imagining his father and sister burning inside them. So that's... <laughs> That's, that stuff is, is definitely laid in strongly, and I agree with you that it wouldn't destroy their relationship and it wouldn't change the kind of tension between them. The, my only hesitation is it doesn't make Tywin right to have treated Tyrion the way he did, of course. It doesn't justify no, any no, of the things no, he did. No, it doesn't. No. But it does. There is, there is a charge I really like to Tywin insisting to himself that Tyrion wasn't his son and being wrong. I like Tywin being wrong about that. I think it fits his character. Hmm. That because he's in so many ways the books kind of deconstruct him and his appeal and what he was fighting for and show how a lot of it was fake and petty and self-obsessed and it, for me it fits into that Tyrion really was his and he just can't deal that his perfect Lannister sperm could have created any <laughs> child that was less than a divine god like there is there is a comeuppance for for Tywin in that but like when he says the, uh, the gods have condemned me to watch you waddle around in that proud lion. Part of me is like I want Tyrion to be his son just to rub Tywin's face in that. And, you know, that's probably not the most intellectual or well-founded well-founded motivation for a theory. But part of me doesn't want Tywin to... Part of me feels like Tywin would have a grim satisfaction in this if it were confirmed. And I don't want to give him that satisfaction, if that makes any sense. It might not be like intellectually like, oh, well, now that I've... I've made the intellectual connection that Tywin, that Tyrion is uh, Tywin's son, or or and this confirms uh, that Ty- that Tywin is full of shit and an asshole. You don't necessarily have to have an intellectual connection to, to that. You, it has to, it, all it has to do, in my opinion, that these reveals or this reinforcement of something that's already existed in the narr- in in the books has to have a narrative payoff. And I think that Tyrion becoming much more like Tywin Lannister is that narrative payoff. And if he's confirmed as or if he's hinted at more strongly that he actually is Tywin's son, I mean, it doesn't, you don't have to be like a scholar to freaking like, and get the enjoyment out of that. And, you know, again, be able to kind of kick Tywin while he's, while he's down sort of thing. Cause that man deserves all of our loathing. And he is one of the worst, if not the worst characters. I mean, they're, he's probably about the worst character in, in the books, I think, or close to. He's down there, certainly. Yeah, we're going to have a lot of fun. That's going to be a fun topic when we get more into Tywin Lannister. Because, yeah, I mean, I'll take any opportunity to kick that dude. When he wasn't the worst, he was empowering the people who were the worst and pretending that's not what he's doing. So, yeah. Uh, and so much so much of Feast and Dance are just shoving into your head that Tywin sucked and salt nothing <laughs> and left nothing behind and screwed his entire family up. And, you know, every, and his corpse stinks and yes. everything is ruined forever. Uh, and I love I love that stuff. That's something I enjoy that Yeah, there are moments I like I feel like Martin like reads how we're feeling about a character and intervenes to to make it clear to us like he did that most obviously with someone like Theon or Jamie, completely changing how people feel about the character, but you can feel that with Tywin mm-hmm. as well. Like maybe he sensed a fandom for Tywin growing unironically that he never meant to create. <laughs> so you can see him trying to come down on the feast just no, no, he's he was He's awful, his terrible. Le- his legacy is blood and chaos and nothingness. Uh, but that that is something we will get into with uh, relish and delight in later episodes. But I think that pretty much wraps it up for, for Game of Thrones John 1. I think you are right. So 
Thank you to everyone for listening and commenting and tweeting at us and sending Tumblr messages and Tumblr asks and also um, sending us emails. We've gotten a couple emails, which have been really awesome. Um, I've, I try, Emmett and I do try and respond to each and every email that we get from you guys. And so send us emails. And again, like we said at the, the top of the episode, if you are an artist and you have a Song of Ice and Fire specific artwork, you would like us to share with the masses. We would more than we would love to uh, to feature you guys as a uh, as an artist for some of our podcasts. So as always, you can listen to us on uh, SoundCloud, uh, Google Play, on iTunes. Once again, our Patreon will be live on April first. That's www.patreon.com/notacast. A S O I A F. So check yeah. that out and throw us a couple dollars if you you feel so inclined. And like Jeff said, continue to hit us up on email, on social media. We're uh, at Notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, on Twitter. And, uh, and next week is going to be uh, next week's going to be a real feast buffet of a chapter yes. uh, for our brains. That's uh, Catalin Two, where the plot starts. Yes, this is the uh, this is the chapter where we have all the foundation that Martin has felt like he's built the foundation for the world, and now he's going to drive the plot forward. Through Catelyn Stark's point of view chapter, and it's uh, it's a great chapter, and uh, I, I'm looking forward to, to talking about it with you, man. It's it's also the first uh, sex scene in yes. Song of Ice and Fire, and one of the better ones, I will argue. So we will we will get to that topic as well. It's that's it's that's damning with faint praise because Martin is not the best with sex scenes, but it's one of the better ones. So look forward to that, everybody. I can't wait, man. So. Anyways, again, thanks for listening, and we will see you guys next week. Take care, everybody. The Not A Podcast podcast is written and recorded by Por Quentin and Brenda Beefish. The music is by Cat Nights Begin. The opening song is called Jewel Fruit, and the closing song is called Alaska Goodbye. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will see you guys next week.